Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. It's Halloween season, All Hallows' Eve. The tradition began some 2,000 years ago as an ancient Celtic festival. People would light bonfires and dress in costumes to ward off ghosts. Well, today, we say, bring on the ghosts. We're bringing you a special re-air featuring some of Nashville's legendary ghost stories. Let's start with the tale of the Bell Witch. The story begins in the early 1800s, about 50 miles northwest of Nashville, a man named John Bell, not to be confused with the prominent state politician John Bell, who lived around the same time. This John Bell was a farmer. He and his wife Lucy came from North Carolina to settle down in the Red River bottomland. He bought a large house with a sizable plot of land where they raised their children, farmed, and grew corn. By all accounts, they had the picture-perfect life. But around 1817, as legend has it, things got pretty weird. Tennessee's own Pat Fitzhugh has been researching the tale of the Bell Witch his entire life. We're going to let him take it from here. The legend of the Bell Witch centers on the John Bell family of Red River, Tennessee, about uh, 50 miles northwest of Nashville. Back in the early 1800s, between 1817 and 1821, the family experienced a series of very dark and unnerving events that happened on their farm and in their house and eventually expanded to about a six square mile area. The first we hear about the so-called Bell Witch entity is when John Bell, uh, the family's father was inspecting his fields and he ran across a strange looking animal. He didn't know what to do. He was terrified. So he tried to shoot this thing. But as soon as he aimed his gun at it, it disappeared. Then not long after that, one of his sons saw what he described as the strangest bird he'd ever seen out over one of the fields in the farm. And he, too, got out his gun and tried to shoot it. And the bird disappeared before he could even take aim. Then it wasn't long after this. In fact, it was just about Christmas time in 1817 when the youngest daughter, Betsy, and some of her friends had gone up on the hill in the woods to play and came back home in terror talking about how they had encountered this lifeless woman hanging from a tree. And of course, the family dismissed that as just the stories and imaginations of little kids. But then as uh, the winter of 1818 and the new year came about, it seemed that more things were happening on the farm. There were what they described as dancing candles out in the woods and they were hearing these really strange noises, strange animal sounds outside. Over time, this thing moved closer and closer to the house and eventually got into the house. 
they were terrified. They didn't know what it was. One night they would hear stones being cast onto the roof of the house. The next night they would hear what they described as chains being dragged across the floor. It was just one thing after another. They thought somebody was playing pranks, but then they would look outside and there would be nobody there. Then after a while, this thing became violent. According to legend, the thing would hit the daughter, Betsy Bell, in the middle of the night, wake her up. She would be crying and screaming. John and Lucy Bell, her parents, would rush to her room with a candle to, uh, you know, to console her, only to find welts all over her face. And they knew that even though her older brothers were capable of playing a lot of tricks on her and her younger siblings, they definitely wouldn't do something that horrible. So John and Lucy Bell decided that they were up against something that they didn't know what was, they couldn't explain, and it was something very malevolent, very bad. So Mr. Bell swore his family to secrecy. They did not want anybody in the Red River settlement to know this stuff was going on. And one big reason for that is Mr. Bell was an elder of the Red River Baptist Church. And this was 125 years after the Salem witch trials. Uh, there were a lot of changes going on in other religions and it just wasn't the proper thing for an elder of a church to say he had a paranormal entity living in his house. No telling what would have happened to him. But nevertheless, the problems became worse. They became more intense, more violent. And finally, word got out. People began to come from all around the Middle Tennessee, Southern Kentucky region, and later even from farther away, as far as England to see what this thing was. Some to experience it, others to debunk it because they thought that the Bells were perpetuating some type of hoax to make money. You know, like having a spook show, uh, so to speak. But the Bells never charged any money for their guests. They gave them rooms to stay in and they fed them really well. But over time, this thing developed a whisper It was a very faint whisper. It was not discernible, but it sounded as though it was desperately trying to tell somebody something. Then as more and more people visited the Bell home, the stronger this thing grew. It's like it fed off of the fear of the visitors and the Bells. And it developed a voice and it spoke in low tones. Some people likened it to the sound of a musical instrument, a cello, when it was content. But when it was angry, it would scream and screech. And people would, of course, ask, you know, who are you? What do you want? Why are you here? And it would give a different story each time. And over time, two big things came about uh, as this thing grew. And the whole time this was disembodied, nobody saw this thing. They only heard it. One thing was 
that it claimed to be was Kate Batts, who was a neighbor of the Bells, who was somewhat of an outcast in the community because her husband was an invalid and they didn't have very much money. So when this thing claimed to be Kate Batts, people believed it and started calling it Kate, and it started answering to that name. Well, over time, more and more people came to the Bell Farm. This disembodied voice got to the point where it could tell people about, about their pasts and everything they've ever done wrong. It would argue with the local preachers about Bible scripture. Sometimes it would make furniture move across the room. Sometimes it would even hit people. So the second thing that happened is this thing promised to kill John Bell and make him die the slowest, most miserable death possible. You know, why would you kill John Bell? Why would anybody want to kill him? Yes, he was a pretty stern businessman and he had a couple of falling outs with people over the years, but why would anybody kill him? And the thing would not answer. It just said that old Jack Bell, as it called him, was a bad man. Eventually, and by December of 1820, John Bell could no longer open his mouth, couldn't even walk. He was just so sick and decrepit. And of course, the whole time, Kate was taking, taking credit for this, saying that it was killing John Bell. And on December 20th, he died. Kate took credit. And legend has it that at Mr. Bell's funeral, as they lowered him into the ground, Kate sang a song in a very drunken, festive voice and didn't stop singing until the last mourner had left the graveyard. There are always strange things happening up there. It's never been solved. When it comes to the legend of the Bell Witch, what you just heard barely scratches the surface. There are hundreds of stories of Bell Witch sightings. Pat Fitzhugh has been writing and researching about this for decades, and there's always been an appetite for it out there. That's because it involves real people and real places here in Tennessee and beyond. Some say the Bell Witch is still out there today. Brave folks will travel and inquire about the tale. Is it legend and myth, or is there something more there? Who knows to be sure? I know one thing, I'm not gonna mess around and find out. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll take you underground and into the walls of the state capitol. Wait, did you hear that? This is Nashville. Colonna, and this is Nashville. It's Halloween season, and to get you in the spooky spirit, we're bringing you a full hour of ghost stories. Before the break, we heard the tale of the Bell Witch, arguably America's greatest ghost story, which happened right here in Tennessee. Okay, so maybe some of you have come across this graphic. It was created by Joshua Stevens, and it's a map of the United States on a black background. At the top, it says, Graveyards of the Contiguous USA, in a blood-red font, and I can only describe as 
Stephen King novel from the 1980s. Now, the legend on this map reads, Graveyard per 100,000 living. And when you look at that map, the brighter in color an area is, the more graveyards, okay? So then, when you zero in on Tennessee, it basically looks like the Milky Way, just totally lit up. I mean, there are lots of graves in our state, y'all. And it's not just the graves we know about either. The dead have a way of turning up where we aren't necessarily expecting them. Remember when that whole redevelopment plan over near Fort Negley got scrapped? Because it was highly likely that human remains are still present? Yeah, there are a lot of bodies in the ground here. Speaking of bodies, there are a few in the walls of the Tennessee State Capitol. Did you know that? Our former producer, Rose Gilbert, got a tour of the Capitol with Jeff Sellers from the Tennessee State Museum. Typically, uh, on our tours, we stick to history, right? But tis the season uh, to, to discuss the uh, spookier and maybe um, paranormal side of um, the Capitol building. Jeff tells me that this building has been in use since 1853, making it one of the oldest working capitals in the nation. Seems like plenty of time for something creepy to happen. There are tales and stories attached to this building that are somewhat unexplained. Generations of Tennesseans have walked these halls, and if the stories are to be believed, some of them never left. It's a beautiful space, high ceilings painted with flowers, grand chandeliers and golden afternoon lights spilling in through slim windows. But at night, I can see how empty this place could get and how small you would feel. By day, the chambers are full of activity. When the legislature is in session, it's chaotically loud, very loud, uh, because of the sound, noise just bounces everywhere. But when no one is here, it is deathly quiet. And we all know it's in the deathly quiet that we encounter the scariest things. Little noises reverberate down the halls, and you can hear whispers of people and footsteps sometimes in which there's no one here. He says building administrators report hearing whispered conversations late at night after everyone has left the building. Security guards will check doors on the first floor only to hear them slam shut after going back upstairs. He remembers one guard story in particular. One time there was a leak in the, in the attic and he was going up there to inspect it. And when he was in the attic at eight o'clock at night, he heard voices and so much so that he turned his flashlight around looking for if anyone was here or around. And he said he went all around and no one was here. So at that point, he said it was time for him to leave, too. So <laughs> not even Jeff is immune. You know, I, I've thought about it. Sometimes the building, particularly in the house chamber, there's a lot of people working up in far flung parts of it. And, you, and, you know, sometimes if you've ever looked over and saw someone and then you did a double take to look back and no one was there you know that can happen sometimes and you're like did i just was i just you know was that just a sh something i've just missed or was that something that's happened a couple of times but you know that could be just my own mind playing tricks on me i don't know but who knows the capital's stately greek revival design is part of what can make it so creepy it's made almost entirely of Tennessee limestone, which really allows sound to carry. You know, these ceilings rise up 45, 50 feet high. Uh, and so it's just almost like you're standing in a cave. When a door closes and it's quiet in here, it booms. 
it would be unnerving. And you can hear if you, you can hear someone on the first floor right now, but when it's quiet and no one is here, it's very quiet. And any little thing will break up that noise. And so, you know, and this is a place where uh, workers, they work late. They're doing important business of the government, so they work late. And sometimes you put someone here all by themselves and you put uh, unexplained sound and all of a sudden you, uh, you can kind of get kind of creeped out very quickly. The building was built by uh, one of the foremost Greek revival architects in the country. His name was William Strickland, and he was a very noted architect. And, and we were very fortunate here in Tennessee to get such a, a man of acclaim to come here and design our Capitol building in 1845. Um, unfortunately for Mr. Strickland, he did not survive to see the completion of his building. He died in 1854. But about six weeks prior to that, he had uh, asked the legislature, the General Assembly, if he could be buried in the walls here. And so when he died, they gave him, they granted him that honor, and he remains buried in the north portico of our Capitol building. But William Strickland isn't the only one buried within these walls. See, there was a building commissioner, Samuel Morgan, who was just as involved in the building as the architect. He went on to outlive Strickland by 26 years. And when it came time for his death, the same honor was given to him. They buried him in the South Wall. These two worked closely together when they were alive. And Jeff says they probably still have a lot to talk about. Death be damned. Uh, the building was going over budget. Samuel Morgan was in charge of making sure it was staying under budget. It, with any government project, there's going to be arguing over details, and so they probably butted heads in any big project like this. Uh, so the story goes that even to this day, they're still kind of quibbling and arguing. People who work here still say sometimes on quiet nights, they can still hear two people talking in the hallways. President James K. Polk and his wife, Sarah Childress, are buried at Tennessee's state capitol too. In fact, it's the only capital in all 50 states to have the final resting place of a U.S. president on site. So there are four people buried in the Capitol and its grounds. But for many more, this was the place they died. On January 3rd, 1863, the Union defeated Confederate forces at the Battle of Stones River and Murfreesboro. Both sides sustained heavy casualties. After that battle, over the course of about a week, there was just a, a, a train of wagons of, of wounded soldiers coming back, both Confederate and Union. Well, Nashville becomes just a huge field hospital, and this, this building was used as a hospital during that time. And at that rate, they said that there was 40 to 50 people, 40 to 50 soldiers dying every day. Ghost stories are about remembering people. Sometimes we know their names and legacies. Sometimes all we've got on record is that they were once here. We can't say for certain that there are actually ghosts here at the Capitol. But what we do know is that the very limestone of this building is haunted by the real history of our nation's original sin. We actually had enslaved African-Americans working here on site uh, um, and, and um, convicts where uh, convict labor was used on the construction of this building. So it's important to remember all of those people who made this building what it is today, made it beautiful, those that we know about and those that we don't know about.
If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Ekelona. It's Halloween season, so we're bringing you a rebroadcast of Nashville Ghost Stories. Our next story comes from Judy Farlow, better known as Butterfly from Johnson City, Tennessee. It was her first time in Nashville. She came down for the Haunted Storytelling Festival at the State Museum. Now I get paid for what I used to get spanked for, which is a pretty good deal. <laughs> <laughs> Butterfly loves telling Appalachian stories. This one is called Sally Ann and the Witch. I remember hearing the phrase, long green bony fingers, and that's what kind of inspired the story. <laughs> and I like it a lot, and, and most of the kids like it a lot, so that's great. Here we go. Sally Ann did not believe in witches, even though her brother quite frequently told her about the witches that were out there in the woods. She was eight years old and quite intelligent and did not believe in witches, thank you very much. Now, she asked her mother and her father about the witches that her brother told her were down that long path through the dark woods where that shack was. He told her a witch lived there. She asked her mom and dad, but they never said whether there were witches or weren't witches, but they did tell her in no uncertain terms, do not go down that long pathway to those dark woods, to that shack that's back there. But you know, sometimes when you're eight years old, you don't listen to your mother and your father the way you should. And she listened to her brother who made a challenge. And he said, I dare you, I double dare you, I quadruple dare you to go down that path through those dark woods to that shack in the woods where the witch lives. And of course, you know, if you're a younger sister, you have to take up the challenge. And so she said she would go. He said, now you have to bring something back to prove that you were there. Okay, she said, well, Halloween was coming. And she put on her costume, which happened to be a little red riding hood costume with a cape on it. And she told her mother and her father that she was going trick-or-treating, but she told the tale because she was planning on going down that long pathway through those dark woods to where that shack was to where her brother said the witch lived. Well, as soon as her mother stopped looking, she had her trick-or-treat bag and she went right straight back there to that long path. And there she started going down that long path through those dark, dark woods to that shack. And as she went, the wind began to blow and howl and swirl, you know how it does, and the kind of noises that it makes in trees. And as it got darker, it got colder, and it looked like to her that the branches of the trees from that dark forest were reaching down, trying to grab a hold of her, and she began to be a little bit afraid, but she was going to prove to her brother that she was not a scaredy cat and that she would go to that shack in the woods. So on she walked and on she walked, and it got colder and colder, and she took that cape that she had and she pulled it around her trying to get warm, but it just wasn't warm enough, and she was cold, cold when she finally got to that shack in the woods. And when she got up close and there was a light coming in the window, a, a dim light. And so she went closer to the window to see if she could see what it was. The window was dirty and full of cobwebs. So she wiped it off and wiped it off until she could look inside and see. And when she looked inside and saw, what she saw was a fire burning in the fireplace, and there was a there was a pot sitting on top of the fireplace, so she knew someone must be home. 
So she decided she would knock on the door and have someone come to the door. Maybe they would let her in and let her get warm because she was really, really cold. She went to the door and she knocked lightly, but nobody came to the door. She went to the door and knocked again, this time a little harder, but no one came to the door. Finally, on her third try, she knocked as hard as she could and the door opened up all on its very own. She stepped inside. Well, you know how it is. When you've been outside and come inside into a room that's even darker, it takes a little while for your eyes to adjust. So it was taking her a little while for her eyes to adjust to that dark when she began to look around in that room. And over on the far wall, she saw there was a, there were some shelves. And on those shelves, there were some bottles that had labels on them, some jars and things. And she went to visit her grandmother all the time. And her grandmother had jars, but the jars that her grandmother had, the labels on them said things like, corn and, and okra and, and tomatoes. But these jars, as her eyes got adjusted to the dark and she began to read, they had things on them like eyes of newt and toes of toes and dead men's eyelashes. She'd never seen anything like that at her grandmother's house. And so now she was beginning to be a little bit afraid and then she walked over to where that fireplace was and where that pot was boiling. And as she got closer, she could look in that pot and it was, ooh, yucky, ugly, green and, and yellow, yucky looking stuff. And it smelled so bad it burned her nose just to breathe it. And then she looked at the table right there and on the table there was a big book that said lotion and potions and spells. And now she began to think maybe there really was such a thing as a witch. She was really cold and she had to go home, but she had to have something to take back to her big brother, Jimmy, to prove that she had been there. And then she looked there and over in the corner there was a closet, she thought. Well, she could go to that closet. Maybe she could find a coat or a sweater or something to, to warm up and that would prove to her brother that she'd been there and it would also get her warm and she could take it back later. So she went over there to that closet and she reached and she opened that closet door, and as she opened that closet door, whoo, coming out of there was the most horrible thing she'd ever seen in her life. It had green face and a long green nose with a big old mole on the end of the nose and hair that was wild streaking out all over everywhere, and she was wearing nothing but black, but the most horrible thing was she reached out towards her, and there were long, green, bony fingers, and she said, I'll get you, I'll get you, I'll get you. Oh, she was so afraid, she began to run as fast as she possibly could, trying to get away from there, but no matter how fast she ran, that witch was right behind her, flying right behind her, and with its long, green, bony fingers reaching out to her, saying, I'll get you, I'll get you, I'll get you. Oh, she was so afraid, Sally was so afraid. How how could she get away from this terrible, terrible witch? What could she do? And no matter how fast she ran, the witch was still right behind her. And then she remembered, <gasps> she remembered on her way there, there was a great oak tree. And the great oak tree was hollow in the inside. And she thought, well, if she could get there quickly enough, she could get inside that hollow and she could hide. And maybe that witch would never find her. And so she ran as fast, as fast, as fast as she possibly could. And she saw that oak tree and got right inside it and crunched down and tried hard not to breathe, to be as quiet as she could, that maybe the witch wouldn't find her. But then in just a few seconds, she heard the sound 
It was the witch flying round and round and round that big old oak tree with the hollow. And then as she listened close, she could hear something right outside of the opening of that oak tree. And then she could smell the horrible, putrid breath of that terrible, awful witch as she looked and saw those long, green, bony fingers reaching in there to her closer and closer and closer until, Tag, you're it. <laughs> Your turn to chase me. And the witch went flying away. That's just to let you know. Witches just want to have fun. Witches just want to have fun, y'all. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll learn about the ghosts haunting some of the most famous music venues in the country. So stay with us. This is Nashville. <laughs> I'm Khalil Ecolona, and this is Nashville. Now, if you dare, let's visit a location a little bit closer to home. It's the most storied stage in Nashville and one of the most famous music venues in the world. But it wasn't designed to be a music venue. Now, as many of you know, the Ryman Auditorium is also affectionately known as the Mother Church of Country Music. But what if Mr. Ryman didn't want that kind of ungodly racket going on in the building that bears his name? What if he did everything he could to chase away concert goers and performers? What if he did all that from beyond the grave? To find out, let me turn it over to our ghost tour guide, John Pica. So the Ryman Auditorium was originally built as a church, the Union Gospel Tabernacle, in 1892. And it was built primarily for evangelist Sam Jones to preach his revival meetings. It was just an open field where he did tent meetings before Thomas Ryman, the infamous riverboat captain, came to one of his tent revival meetings, was converted, and then sold his riverboat and all of his businesses, invested all of his fortune into building the Union Gospel Tabernacle. And in 1904, when Thomas Ryman died, they renamed it the Ryman Auditorium in his honor. But to keep the lights on, they had to allow more and more secular music and events to happen. And apparently, the spirit of Thomas Ryman did not like that. And immediately, strange things would happen, like people would be standing on stage singing, speaking, presenting, and the audience would just start to get up and leave in droves. And when they were asked why they were leaving, they said, well, we can't hear anything on stage because of all of the stomping up and down the center aisle. Well, this went on for several years until 1943. The Grand Ole Opry moves into the Ryman Auditorium and they bring with them for the first time electronic amplification. And now people could hear what was happening on the stage and not be disturbed by the spirit of Thomas Ryman. However, Thomas Ryman decided to exact his revenge in another way. 
from 1943 until 1974, when the Grand Ole Opry left the Ryman, 37 Grand Ole Opry performers died premature and mysterious deaths after performing on stage. Most notable was Patsy Cline. She did her show, got on a plane, crashed in the Smokies that night. So in 1974, when the Grand Ole Opry left the Ryman Auditorium, they built their own theater on the other side of the Cumberland, near where the Opryland Hotel is. Coincidence? And when they left, they cut a circle out of the Ryman stage, and they took it and they installed it into the new stage in their new theater. And since then, 13 more Grand Ole Opry superstars who have stepped foot in that circle have died premature and mysterious deaths. There are some superstars who absolutely refuse to step in that circle. Carrie Underwood is one. We've heard from Trisha Yearwood that they will not step in that circle. And if you go to the Opry today, you'll notice that everything is set just left of center, just left of that circle. And there's a piece of carpet laid over that circle in the stage. It's to prevent the curse of Thomas Ryman. And they say that Thomas Ryman still hangs out at the Ryman Auditorium, that he'll pull people's hair, he'll poke them in the back when they're sitting in the auditorium. And there are several other spirits that haunt the Ryman. And if you go there, you may just encounter one, two, or maybe more. to our storyteller, John Pica. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil A. Colonna. It's Halloween season, so we're bringing you a rebroadcast of Nashville Ghost Stories. So, the deadly circle on stage at the Grand Old Opry isn't the only spooky thing going on on that side of the Cumberland. Becca Raleigh was an actress and comedian here in Nashville. She's now taken her talents to South Florida. But when she first moved here, she used to work at Madame Tussauds Wax Museum at the Opry Mills Mall, which is, of course, right next to the Grand Ole Opry. And boy, does she have stories to tell. Becca likes to tell her ghost stories over cocktails. Cheers. Cheers. I've always been into ghosts. I loved all the ghost shows when I was growing up. Tell me about your time. <sighs> When you worked at the Opry Mills Mall yeah. at Madame Trousseau's yeah. Wax Museum. Yeah. When I arrived to Nashville, I didn't know a ton of Nashville history, and I certainly didn't know that the mall and the land that it sits upon is not only haunted, but cursed. Ooh. Yes. Cursed. Cursed. Lots, Lots of curses in Nashville. It's cursed by 
a woman named Lady McGavick. That's where we get McGavick Pike and all that other stuff. She was a plantation owner back in the day. She owned land that the mall currently occupies. And the legend has it, she died because a chandelier fell on top of her. And her dying wish was that they make her property into some kind of orphanage or school or a library, something to enhance and benefit the population of Nashville. And then now it's a mall with a giant hotel on it. More stores than you could ever shop. More yummy food than you could ever eat. More fun than you could ever imagine. Opry Mills, experience the Mills effect. And she's very upset by it. Pre the flood of 2010, Opry Mills had a 100% turnover rate for the overnight custodial staff. Because wow. Yes. They were finding all kinds of creepy things, like there used to be a bunch of um, fountains in the mall, and they would find naked footprints around the fountains, like child-sized footprints, like kids playing in the fountain. But they would also be chased by a woman in a black dress. And I mean, Khalil, think about that. Wow, yeah. You're not seeing a dark figure in the corner of your eye. We're not talking about just a spooky sensation. We're talking about being chased by a dark figure in the middle of the night. That's creepy, I would quit. Yeah, they did, they quit. They quit a lot. <laughs> yeah. Everybody quit. Nobody stuck. No one was like, yeah, this is cool. This paycheck is not worth it. No. I had one maintenance man tell me about this crazy experience where he was hearing his name called throughout the night. And he decided he would just wear headphones and continue working. And then the doors to the attraction started shaking violently like somebody was trying to get in. And um, he went to the security office and looked at the tape where he could see the other side of the door. And there was nobody there, but he could still see the doors shaking in the tape. I got a job of restoring wax figures. My job was whenever somebody decided, I'm going to test out to see if this is actually wax and like dug a hole in somebody's face or ripped out Diana Ross's eyelashes. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the beautiful soul and sound of Diana Ross, alone, in love, close to you. Yeah!
and glad to be. I would go in and, and fix that stuff. That was my job. And so we had a particularly heavily damaged night one night. It really only takes one person with a lot of motivation and a little bit of free time to really, truly mess up a wax museum. So I, I came in and I was working pretty late into the night. It was about 3 a.m. I was working on Patsy Klein. And Patsy Klein creeped me out in particular because, you know, she died in that horrible plane crash just outside of Nashville, really. And, um, Crazy. like, I mean, it was bad. They only, sound, they only found pieces of her. And um, those wax figures, they're, they're put together like a, like a big puzzle piece. But for the most part, without getting too much away, they usually have this giant upper wax section and Patsy Klein is very much just a head mm -hmm. and it, 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 it it's it's creepy and so I was working on her all night and I you know I kept getting this feeling that I was being watched and I kept seeing something out of the corner of my eye but of course you're in a wax museum so every time you turn around it's just Stevie Wonder, you know, or whatever. <laughs> but my, my radio kept turning off and I kept, I would get up and turn it back on and it, and it never did this. I mean, for the most part, I would listen to that radio for eight hours a day with no disruptions and, and, it, and it turned off several times. And I kept getting up and turning it back on and on my way back to my desk, the last time that it happened, I washed my coffee mug that was sitting probably about four inches away from the edge of the desk, violently slide off the desk, and it landed several feet away and just smashed on the floor. And that was startling, and it made me very uncomfortable, and I texted my boss, and I was like, you know, Patsy looks great. Do you mind if, <laughs> do you mind if I go, you know? Um, and she was like, yeah, no, that's fine. And so I, I, I put Patsy back together, and I get my desk cleaned up, and I'm clocking out, and all of my hair just stands on end. And I just get the worst feeling and I'm setting the alarm and this magnetic sign that's been hanging on this metal door for the entire year and a half that I worked there just falls off the door inexplicably right as I'm setting the alarm. And I didn't even look behind me. I was so creeped out at this point in time. I just set the alarm and I go. On the rain home, I'm like, you're crazy. You just work in a creepy wax museum. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, there was probably condensation on your mug, even though it was hot coffee. It doesn't make any sense. But, you know, I'm trying to, you know, talk myself out of this. Yeah, rationalize everything. Exactly. And um, when I get back to work the next day, I see that the sign is on the door. And I'm like, maybe I heard something else. You know, it's a big mall whatever and i go in there and i kind of 
tell my coworker, you know, I think I'm losing my mind. I thought when I clocked out last night that that sign had fallen. And she's like, oh yeah, I picked it up when I walked in today. Oh. Yeah. And so I'm like, okay, we gotta, we gotta go check the security tape, right? So we go, we look up the security tape at that time, and you can see me clock out. And then the tape just cuts to black for like a solid 30 seconds. And when it comes back on, like I'm gone and that sign is on the ground, but you do not see what happens. Ooh. Like, and that security camera runs 24 seven. And in the week that it had logged, the only time that it cut to black was right then. Hmm. Yeah. Wow, so Lady McGavick yeah. is not playing. Lady McGavick is not playing. And um, I'm not the only person that's got stories from it. It's said that uh, Lady McGavick also haunts that hotel. Mm. That's right there. There is video evidence of the woman in black, like floating around the chandeliers. It's reported mm. that they see her wading through the canals of that giant hotel. People are said that see her in their rooms as they sleep at night.
Thanks for tuning in for this special episode. Hope we didn't scare you off. This is Nashville is a production of Nashville Public Radio. You can listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's rebroadcast was produced by Elizabeth Burton. Special shout out to our intern, Tori Hoover. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to Rose Gilbert, Mariana Bacayao, Carrie Pagetta, and Joe Pagetta. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Le Colonna. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody, and be good to each other.